0: What time is it? Does anybody know what time it is? Let me check. Oh, it's time for the simultaneous sip. It's time for Coffee with Scott Adams, DJ Dr. Funk Juice. You know what time it is. Yes, you do. It's time for the simultaneous sip, and all you need it is really not much. All you need is a cup or a mug or a glass, a tank or a chalice or a stein, a canteen jug or a flask, a vessel of any kind. Fill it with your favorite liquid. I like coffee. And get ready for the unparalleled pleasure, the dopamine hit of the day, the thing that makes everything better it's a beverage that is spewing hearts. I think if I've got my left and right correct. Hearts coming out of my cup. Look at that. Whoa cool illusion, eh? And get ready. For the simultaneous sip, it happens now. Mm -hmm. I realize if you're watching this on YouTube later where we upload it or on podcast, what I said about the cup full of hearts makes no sense in your world. But remember, we're all watching two movies on one screen, so don't be surprised if what you see is different from what other people see. So, in no particular order, uh, you know that gigantic story about the, uh, the anti-Trump guy who tried to massacre a bunch of Trump volunteers? You know the thing that everybody's talking about? It's a gigantic story. I mean, why wouldn't it be? There's somebody who tried to massacre a bunch of Trump supporters. Oh, wait, it's not a national story. It's a kind of a little blip. Sure, it was mentioned. The guy got lost in the wash. That's right. There's somebody who tried to murder Trump supporters. Didn't try to mess didn't try to kill a leader. Tried to kill ordinary voters who were just registering people to vote. They weren't causing trouble. So that's where the rhetoric against Trump supporters gets you. Somebody actually tried to kill him. Amazing. Um we'll, we'll get to New Hampshire. I'm just letting people pile in here. Uh, my favorite, uh, my favorite pundit, and I say favorite because he's so absurd, is this Stephen Collins, a guy who writes, he writes an anti-Trump article for CNN.com just about every day. And uh, here's how he's trying to create the newest frame in which people can find a way to hate Trump. Because they're running out of waves, it's like, oh, he's colluding with the Russians, okay, he's not. Uh, he did something terribly impeachable, okay, it wasn't that impeachable. It was you know closer to a perfect letter than impeachable <clears throat> so they're they're desperately cycling through. Well, he doesn't seem like he's actually insane so here's here's what they've lit on, and you can see that uh, Stefan Collinson is sort of I think maybe testing the water with this. So here's the approach, a quote from his article. The sudden storm over Stone, so talking about Roger Stone and possible pardon, triggered by an early hours tweet by the president is part of an accelerated pattern of unmoderated behavior since Trump was found not guilty of impeachable, wait, of of impeachable offenses. Wait a minute. He was found not guilty of impeachable offenses? That's a wrong sentence, isn't it? Wasn't he found not guilty? If there were impeachable offenses, that would suggest that it was just a mistake and he was actually guilty. I like how he sort of stick that in there, so you uncritically read it as though it was a travesty of justice. (laughs) Yeah, so there were impeachable defenses, but inexplicably he wasn't impeached. How do you explain it? It's hard to explain. Uh, anyway, so, uh, <laughs> some of whom express the hope that the scar of impeachment, the scar of impeachment, the, the red letter I that's now burned on his chest, he will, he will forever suffer the scar of impeachment. I haven't noticed, have you? It must be, a, it must be like a little, a little scar that's, that's maybe underneath his arm here where you don't see it. I mean there might be a scar of impeachment on Trump but I haven't seen it yet it must be very small and covered with clothing um, but anyway it looks like the new attack against Trump is that he's unleashed he's going to be he no longer can his his uh his dictatorial impulses be controlled he can't be controlled he's he's Godzilla no he can't be Godzilla somebody else is Godzilla so it feels like not the strongest attack because it, I don't know, it just doesn't ring true. But they're, they're trying desperately to find something that connects as a criticism. All right, the big story, one of the big stories from last night is that uh, Yang is out. Andrew Yang has dropped out of the race, did not really get the, uh, the support that he needed to continue. But I would like to join all of you in thanking Andrew Yang. And I and I think most of you would agree with this. Um, I think he made the the race better. I think he made the conversation in the United States about the topics that he was pushing, UBI, robots are coming for your jobs, etc. I think he I think he added a real genuine, which is the same as real. Um, he really upgraded the conversation. Now he didn't quite you know make it to the the final three. But he certainly changed the conversation, and I think it might be a permanent kind of shift in our thinking. And he was fun. Um, He was great for Asian Americans because, you know, he got as far as he did. So everything about him was good. It was a very positive experience. So thank you, Andrew Yang, for being a good American, a great American, you know, one of the best. Um, So thanks for that. Um, One of the things that uh, one of my uh, Twitter friends Uh, noted is that he had a little program that I was not aware of. And I thought I'd give it a shout out because it was interesting. It was uh, basically a student exchange program within the United States, (laughs) which is not the worst idea I've ever heard of. So normally you do the student exchanges with other countries. So that you both get a little flavor of what the other country is about, it's good in the long run for you know peaceful relationships and understanding and all that. But I guess Yang was suggesting that we do it within the United States, so that people would get out of their little bubble of their neighborhood or their culture and see what it's like somewhere else. It's actually a really good. That's a really good suggestion. Let's keep that one out there. All right. So thanks, Andrew Yang. Um, let's talk about the. The other candidates and where we're at. Now, if I had to pick one variable that makes the most difference in who's going to win the presidency, I would say the economy. Now, President Trump has an incredible lead in the economy, you know, meaning that he's an incumbent over, one, well, maybe the best economy we've ever had, And sure, sure, you can say, oh, Obama had better stats than this or that, or it's just a continuation of Obama, and people will say that. But still, when things are going well in the economy, it is a super strong indicator. But the second um, big variable in a world of many variables, the two that stick out are the black vote and economics. So if President Trump looked good on those two things, you'd have to look for some kind of a special situation to take him out. Because those are the by far the two most commanding variables, not the only variables, and there could be lots of surprises between now and Election Day. But these are very predictive. So let's look at how the other candidates look on those two variables and some others. And let's talk about matchup. What is, what is Trump's biggest negative? His biggest negative. Eh, you, could say, you could say there are two. I'd say two of his biggest negatives are um, the deficit, that Trump um, is not as good on reducing the deficit as even his own side would like. And certainly, you know, the people who oppose him would use that as a club. But he's running against people who are going to make the deficit worse, and they're not even pretending that's not the case. They're not even pretending. If you look at Bernie Sanders, is he going to make the deficit better or worse? Well, I think you know the answer to the question. That's not even a political opinion. I believe Sanders would probably say the same thing I'm saying, which is, yeah, you know, this, this stuff is more expensive than what we're doing now. So, of course, it's going to make the deficit go up. So even if you increase, uh, if you increase taxes a lot... Most people think the deficit is going to go up under Sanders. So I think President Trump's biggest weakness, one of them, the deficit, the Democrats can't use. It's off the table. It's his biggest flaw that's not about his personality, you know, his personal style. But his biggest flaw that's on policy, they got nobody. They got nobody who's going to do anything. Now, maybe... um, you know, maybe when uh, Bloomberg gets, gets into the race, you know, in the actual voting part of the race, maybe it would look different. But even he's looking to reduce, you know, to be very aggressive on climate change. It's hard to imagine that anybody who's going to be super aggressive on climate change is also going to be good for the deficit. So they got nothing, for, nothing against him on the deficit. He's completely free from that criticism, essentially. And what about the black vote? We'll, we'll go through each of the candidates and, and talk about that. I think that's the, the other biggest thing. Uh, so I saw on some blog that uh, black support for Bernie <clears throat> plunged to 8%. <laughs> what? <laughs> 8%? Now, I don't know how they, they measure such things. Because if 8% is just the share he got from you know the other Democrats... I don't know if it means the same as if you were running in the general election. He's obviously going to get more than 8 percent black support. But uh, the, the real thing is that it, it looks like it, um, it reduced by half recently. Now, I'm not sure if you can trust the st- statistics on any of this stuff yet, the way they ask the questions, the earliness of it all, that sort of thing. But it does seem like Sanders does not have some advantage with the black vote. So that would be advantage Trump because Trump has an actual track record in office that even Democrats say, oh, I got to admit, that's pretty good for the black community. The, everything from supporting the historically black colleges, prison reform, um, enterprise zones, and good um, good employment rates. and And I don't think you can I don't think you can underestimate how important it is that Trump talks about benefiting the black community more than anybody. Am I, am I wrong about that? If you were to just look at the, um, all the things that people say, all of the Democrats collectively or individually, and then look at all the things that President Trump says, which of them talks more about uh, benefiting the black community in this country? I think it's Trump 10 to 1. I don't think it's even close. Name the other big policy that any of the Democrats have for helping the black community. Um, nothing? Uh, am I wrong that I can't think of one? I can't think of a single Democratic candidate, and there are so many of them, who have a policy that I would identify as, oh yeah, that's clearly you know, designed for the benefit of the, the black community. I, know. I, think, I think Trump is actually saying the most, as well as, oh, somebody said Stire and, um, and reparations. But I don't know if anybody takes that seriously, do they? Do you think there are too many black voters who think, yeah, I'm going to get me some reparations? I don't think anybody thinks that's real. That's more of a talking thing. Anyway, so I think uh, Bernie's got a problem there. With the black vote. Um, Lloyd Blankenfein, ex Goldman Sachs CEO, was tweeting this. And this is important because he's a rich Democrat, all right? He's a rich non Trump supporter. So, a rich Democrat, one of the richest, says in a tweet if Dems go on to nominate Sanders, the Russians will have to reconsider who to work for to best screw up the US, he tweeted. Uh, um, And then he said, uh, Sanders is just as polarizing as Trump and he'll ruin our economy and doesn't care about our military. If I'm Russian, I go with Sanders this time around. (laughs) What about, uh, I mean, right? And this, this is a Democrat saying that. And I've got a feeling that rich people, what they're maybe really worried about is their taxes and, and their economic situation. But that's a pretty strong broadside from a rich Democrat, and i got to think there are other rich Democrats who have the same opinion. Now, if let's say one of the, uh, the Bernie or one of the super socialists, the, one, the ones who are more socialist, gets nominated. There's a gigantic attack vector there. I don't even know if that makes sense. An attack vector? let's assume that made sense, that Trump has available to him that he hasn't really busted out yet. Could be he's just waiting for the right time to take out the Gatlin gun. But And it goes like this, and I've told you this before. When the economy is working really, really well, as it is in the opinion of most citizens right now, you don't add risk. You don't completely change something that's working well. And that's what Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and the other socialist-leaning ones want to do. Trump has not tried to doubt that argument yet, that you don't break something that isn't broken, or you don't fix something that isn't broken. And when he does, that's sort of the end of it, because older people are the voters, more so than the young. Bernie seems to have captured the support of all the people who are least likely to vote. the the youth, people who are young and don't have health care. I think they're the least likely to vote. Am I? Can somebody fact check that? Whereas Trump has a natural constituency even more so than ever of people who just say okay, I'm old, don't rock the boat. Things are going okay. Trump owns the things are going okay, let's not change it group, and that's all the seniors. So So good job, Bernie, in getting such vocal support from people who probably don't vote that much. That's going to cost him. All right. um, Bernie Sanders hired a band for his last campaign event. The name of the band, and I'm not making this up, what are the odds that Bernie Sanders would hire a band to perform at his event, and the name of the band would be the strokes. Come on. The, it, uh, one of two things is possible. Either the person that I named the mole is working for Bernie, meaning secretly giving him bad advice and doing all the wrong things in his social media. I don't think such a person really exists, but it's fun to think about it. Because when you see him do stuff like this, you say to yourself, that looks more like a prank than an actual thing that would just happen naturally now of course it's a world full of coincidences as I tell you often and so if I had to guess of course it 's just a coincidence but I think somebody should have maybe said Bernie maybe maybe we should not associate with strokes you know no Bernie didn 't have a stroke, but you still think of this cardiovascular system as all one thing it sort of sort of blends together in people's minds and remind you of his mortality. Um, people are all excited about Buttigieg, because he has so much support, and he's, he's finished one or two in the, last, in the first two events. So, hey, it's going to be all him, right? Except that we're going to run into the states that have an actual minority population for the first time, and he's sort of done already. So I would say that edge is probably 90% certain, I would say. He's probably a dead man walking um, in terms of politics because I think as soon as he hits the minority vote, uh, you're going to see his, his strength just evaporate. So that's my prediction. So I think, I think his ride was exciting, but he's sort of closer to the end of his ride than the beginning. Um, of course, we need to talk about uh, Biden. Um, so there are two views on Biden. One is that he had this clever stat- strategy where he would lose the first two events, but then he would come back strong once the once the states with a bigger minority population were voting. But it looks like his support has cratered, and I think that the first two um, the first two outcomes, as somebody smart once said. Uh, black people watch the news too. <laughs> it's one of those dumb, dumb ideas. And somebody said, if you're, if you're a black supporter of Biden, let's say you've been supporting him when, when you answered the the pollsters up until now, you had your television on, you, or you heard the news one way or another, you saw the news, and you saw that Joe Biden doesn't have white support he doesn't have white support. So if you're a black supporter of Biden, are you going to climb on a horse that doesn't have white support in the United States? That's sort of a problem. <laughs> so I think, you know, the the rational black voters who are paying attention are saying, ah, uh, I think I'd rather be with somebody who could get a, a white vote because I'm going to need a few of those if I want to if I want to be on the winning team. So I would agree with the um, pundits who are now saying that Biden is completely done and it's just a matter of time before he finds the most graceful way to to make his exit. Now, I would like to claim partial credit for predicting how many many people, I think a lot of you were with me here, how many people from the very beginning when Biden was the overwhelming uh, polling favorite, how many people said as clearly as I did, He's not going to make it to the nomination. I've been saying that since the beginning. And it was because he would falter. He just doesn't there's just not enough left of him, unfortunately. Age, age has taken its toll. So now I got the Kamala Harris thing completely wrong, so I don't want to brag too much about the Biden part. And if Biden is completely out, which I, I assume will be the case, alas... You know, I suppose he could throw a Hail Mary and say, you know, let me tell you who my vice president would be and look at me again. So he does have that play, to name a vice president, but we haven't seen that play ever work for anybody. So I think Biden's done. Um, let's talk about Klobuchar. Klobuchar, in my opinion, is the big winner. And I saw some people mocking, mocking the idea that she was the big winner because she came in third. All right, she so came in third. How can you be the big winner if two people just kicked your butt and came in first and second? And the answer is this: How many times have I told you that the direction of things matters more than where things are? Where things are is that Biden and Buttigieg just were the two highest vote getters in two events in a row. That's where we are. But where are we heading? That's the Klobuchar story. The Klobuchar story is that she just got a huge boost, and enough so that she's in the serious competition, enough people are paying attention. Her, her finish should make all the people who, were, who didn't pay attention to her before start paying attention to her. But there's a really interesting part of the story. Now, if you read my book, Win Bigly, many of you have, you know that sometimes it's impossible to tell when something happens by coincidence versus when it has been influenced by some event. Can't really tell. And so this is part of the fun. It turns out that um, if you looked at the signs her supporters, Klobuchar's supporters, were holding behind her when she gave her speech, the I guess they've picked the slogan win big. Win big. That's the Klobuchar slogan. Now, Win Big Lee comes loosely from President Trump. Now, I believe he was saying Win Big League, but it sounds like big, Win Big Lee, and so I use that um, humorously as my book title, as if he had been saying bigly. although lately I think he does say Big Lee, but that's another story. So here's, and, and I've told you before, now this isn't the first time you're going to hear this. If this were the first time I ever said what I'm going to say now, it would sound a little, you'd be a little skeptical. But I've been saying this for a while. I tell you that one of the ways that I trace my own persuasion is by choice of words. When you see an unusual choice of words migrate from, you know, the things I've said or, or written into other people's mouths or their presentation, it doesn't necessarily mean that you influence them, but it's a flag. It's a little signal. And so I say, that's very interesting. I wrote a book with all of the best persuasion techniques that President Trump used to win, and it becomes sort of a a manual that any candidate could, could read to improve their persuasion. And then I see that something very close to the title of my book just appeared on the signs. Now, I'm not making any claim that they made the signs because of my book, at least consciously. Let me ask you this Do you think there's anybody in the Democratic campaigns, let's say their campaign staffs, do you think that any of the Democrats have anybody on their staffs who have ever read the one book? that is, by its design, the most helpful book any of them could read for improving their communication, which is all they're doing. They're not governing. They're communicating. A campaign is nothing but, well, it's mostly communicating with a little bit of organization in there. So what are the odds that a best-selling book that tells you the best way to communicate in a political context would be read by people who do that for a living and read books? Pretty well. There's a pretty good chance that some of them are familiar with the book. But if, if it were true that Klobuchar had been uh, influenced, or let's say she uh, improved her game by reading my book, and I'm not saying that's the case. I'm saying here's what you would look for. What you would look for is that the technique in the book would start coming out in her uh, presentation stronger than you've seen it before. Did any of you catch her semi-victory speech last night in which she was claiming victory for coming in third? Did anybody see that? Somebody's asking me if I'm secretly consulting Klobuchar. I'm not. And I wouldn't lie to you about that. I I would not say to you, I would not look you in the eyes and say, I am not, if I were even doing a little little bit or indirectly or in any way. I'm not. Uh, Nor am I advising any Democrat. That's not happening. Um, but if you heard her speech, she started out with a super visual and emotional story about her grandparents. You know, coal miner. You know, uh, picking up his sister from uh, from adoption agency because he had to work when he was a kid, and and then they worked their way up, and it was the American dream, etc. And that was a super visual. Yeah, it was a super visual and emotional story. What did Van Jones call out after um, Klobuchar gave that? Van Jones, who I often tell you is sort of the, the one-eyed, he's the one-eyed Democrat in the land of the blind. He, he, just listen to what he says, and you're going to get a clearer view of the field than what any of the other pundits say. It's very consistent. He does it just every time his opinion is just a little more clear, a little more on point than just about everybody who's talking about this stuff. And, uh, and one of the things that Van Jones pointed out is how uh, good she was with story. And he was like, he was kind of blown away a little bit by the quality of her speech. Have you ever heard that before? Has anybody ever said that Klobuchar, man, she can give a speech that, you know, touches your heartstrings. I've never heard it. I've never heard anybody say, "Man, Klobuchar, what a orator. Her speaking, you know, moves me." Never heard it before. And then she walked up on stage yesterday, and she just nailed it. I mean, I watched I watched just the first part of the speech live, and I was sitting there thinking, am I imagining this? Or is this really good? And then I, I started looking for the visual elements. She talked about the grandmother packing a lunch. You can see it, can't you? You can see the grandmother. You can see her packing the lunch. And then she talked about the coal miner who you know, went down in a cage into the mine. You could see it. You could feel it. You were in the mine with her grandfather. You could see the grandfather borrowed a car to drive to get his sister who had been put in an orphanage. Uh, orphanage? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because they didn't have enough money for all their kids. You could you could see him borrowing the car. You could see him driving the car. You could see him driving back with his sister. It was amazingly visual. So look for that. If it's true, and I'm not saying it is, but there are some certainly some breadcrumbs here that would suggest that somebody on the Clobertshire campaign has figured out a way to be a lot more persuasive. Now I would say that uh, I've called uh, Klobuchar's uh, technique the tortoise versus the hares. The other candidates are the hares. They're they're trying to the other the hares are running fast and burning brightly and you know, winning the early stuff. But Klobuchar just keeps tortoising along. Bum bum bum. Hey, what's today? Took another step today. Bum bum bum. How are you guys doing? Flaming out? Getting in trouble? Saying things you shouldn't say? I'm just Climb it along, like a little tortoise. Do, You can try to hit me, but my shell will will reject your stuff. Boo, boo, boo. And she simply didn't make mistakes, right? I apologize for all my nasal problems <clears throat> live here. I've got some surgery lined up to rotor root my nasal cavities, and then I should be fine after a while. Um, but it seems to me that Klobuchar, by simply not drawing attacks and not making any obvious mistakes, is starting to get a second look. So the tortoise um, strategy looks kind of good. It looks pretty strong. Now here's the other interesting thing about her. What's what's the big complaint about Trump? Usually it's about his being mean, right? He's mean. He's mean. He's a big old meanie. Uh, Trump is most associated with New York City, even though he's moved his place of residence. We think of Trump as a New Yorker with a um, sort of a New Yorker personality, a little tougher, more in your face. And then there's Klobuchar, who is associated with Minnesota. What is Minnesota most famous for among all the states and the Union? Now, if you didn't know this, I'd be surprised. Minnesota produces the nicest people in the universe. I don't know why. It just does. There's something about Minnesota that produces nice people fairly consistently. So she comes from the literally the nicest state that produces, for whatever reason, the nicest people, personality-wise, against the Trump personality who's sort of the New York personality. That's an interesting matchup because there's, there's a pendulum effect. You know, people might want a fighter until they they get a little tired of the fighter, and then maybe they need somebody nice after a while, so there's certainly a longing for niceness that makes her a good match up. I don't know that you could beat the president by being more more of whatever he is, by being more attacking than he is. I don't know that you can I don't know that you can over attack no you could over attack I don't know that you could beat Trump by being more like Trump. I think you have to counter-program him with something that's also good that's the antidote to Trump. Klobuchar has that. She looks, she looks like a you know, a dependable pair of shoes. And she's nice. Now, there's these rumors about you know eating salad with her comb and all that. I don't know if any of that's going to be a problem. It doesn't seem to be dogging her. So I think that'll be uh, nothing. So anyway, she's, uh, she's got a lot going on, so let's keep an eye on her and see if she's learned to persuade as well as I fear she may have. <laughs> all right, <clears throat> let's talk about Bloomberg. Bloomberg, of course, has that stop-and-frisk problem, the black support problem, but, he's, but worse than that, he's a terrible matchup for Trump. If you were to take a blank piece of paper and say to yourself, all right, your exercise is to invent a candidate... Um, and make the candidate the worst matchup you could possibly think of for President Trump. What's the worst thing you could do? It's like, well, billionaire, and that's pretty bad. Uh, But worse, billionaire with foreign entanglements, especially with countries we're worried the most about. Hello, China. Bloomberg's got China entanglements. He's probably got all kinds of entanglements all over the globe. Do any of those entanglements mean that something bad has happened, could happen, would happen? Who knows? But it's not a good matchup, because that's one of the things that people were afraid of with Trump, is the the international entanglements. So are are you going to oppose him with the guy who has the most international entanglements we've ever seen? I doubt anybody has more international entanglements than Bloomberg. Here's one you don't see coming, or maybe you do. Has has Bloomberg got any Me Too problems? Does anybody, I don't see it in the headlines, maybe there were some stories that were unconfirmed floating around, but here's the thing, he's an old white billionaire of a certain age. Let me ask you this question. If you're an old white billionaire of a certain age, don't you have a lot of Me Too's in your in your portfolio. Now maybe they haven't all come out, but the odds that the odds of any old white billionaire, and I won't even I'm not even gonna make this personal about Bloomberg, because I have I have no information that would say there's anything wrong with him, or he's bad. In fact I like him. I think Bloomberg's a solid guy. Bloomberg's a solid guy and I would say he's a a solid patriot. I don't like I don't like his political opinion at the moment but he's a solid, smart, reasonable, right-minded kind of guy. But you know, there's just nobody in that demographic who isn't going to get a Me Too coming out of the woods somewhere. Somewhere. Now, the other, um, the other big thing that's different about him and Trump is climate change. And he's going for this, you know, get rid of, I don't know, most carbon fuels, 80% or something. And he doesn't go... Far enough, probably, for the Democrats who think it's the end of the world, climate change. But I saw a study recently that said that climate change for the country as a whole was one of the lowest priorities. Now, I'm not sure I totally believe the polls on that, because the way people answer questions of what is a priority can be, um, you know, I'm not sure that those are really um, credible polls. But the poll I saw showed climate change almost last and economics and immigration toward the top. So that's a problem. Um, Bloomberg, I'm sure, is not going to be as pro immigration as his own team wants. I just don't think he has enough red meat for his own team. He, he's sort of in that weird, uninteresting ground in the middle. He doesn't have enough for Democrats, he's not enough like Trump to be a Republican. He's sort of in that dead man's, you know, in tennis there's a, there's a part of the court that's the, the dead man's zone, that if, if you move into that part of the tennis court, somebody's going to win the point because it's not a good place to be. It's too close to the net, but not close enough. Um, I think Bloomberg's there. He's in that weird area where he's not going to excite anybody. So He's also boring and short compared to Trump. We would like to think this short doesn't make a difference. Now, Bloomberg's you know, roughly the same size as me. Now, do I think I could not be president because of my height? No, I could be president. I mean, if I wanted to, I'm pretty sure I could do it. <laughs> I did write Win Bigly. Um, now, I'm not going to do it. I have no interest in that kind of work. But I don't think my height would stop me. So I don't think his height is going to stop him, but it's a negative. If you stand again on this screen, people are, you know, in their, in their uh, let's say their non-critical part of their brain are just going to say, leader, uh, I want a leader who looks like a leader. Uh, I'll take the big one. Thank you. So it does make a difference. Maybe not the commanding difference. The other problem is He's boring. He's boring. He's boring. How do you take the most boring candidate and put him up against Trump, the most interesting human being we've ever, we've ever known in the history of civilization? That's like the worst. Um, and also there's a question about his age, whether he's losing a step. That will always be a question. And you remember he was talking about how he would, if he became president, he would work from a cubicle, basically or an open office instead of having private offices. That's the worst instinct. It sounds like, um, you know, when when Bloomberg did his little I'm going to work in a cubicle when I'm mayor, I thought to myself, that's not bad. That's not bad. If you're a mayor, you're more like a senior vice president at a big company. A senior vice president at a big company might want to not have a big office and look like they're special might want to have a cubicle and be a person of the people. I can see it. I don't think it was important. You know, I don't think it made a difference. But I can see that as a branding thing, it would make sense as a mayor. But as soon as you say, you're going to be the brand of our country, you're going to be be the person we think of when we think of the United States, you don't want them in a cubicle. You want them in the Oval Office every time. Because that office is who we are. That's our brand. You know, it'd be great if you take your own brand. Mike Bloomberg, if you want to make your your personal brand, I'm a guy who just works in a cubicle. I'm a normal guy. That's okay with me. Do anything you want with your own brand. But if you become president, you're my brand. You're my brand as president. What you do reflects on me. If you're a mayor, does what the mayor does reflect on, on the people in the city? Not really, right? Have you ever bonded... Have you ever thought of yourself as being part of the brand of your mayor? No, not once. But when you think of president, that's an accessory to you. You, you, American citizens, a lot of people from other countries watching this, but if you're American, your president is part of your brand, whether you like it or not. And and that's just sort of a dumb old person move to not correct from the fact that what he did as a mayor just doesn't make sense as president. It just doesn't make sense. And it feels like an old guy who's just playing the hits. You know, he's like a band who used to be popular, but he can't write a hit song anymore. So he's just going to play the oldies. I just don't think that matches up against Trump. Uh, I also think Trump has uh, another advantage, which is that he's going to be more immune from fake news than ever before. If because we've watched um, the fake news brand Trump as a certain thing and then be wrong time after time after time, you know, from the Russia collusion to you you name it, you know what I'm talking about. Um, I don't know if the attacks on Trump will have the same power they might have before we saw him in, in office for four years. I think I think he's just more immune from every kind of attack. I can't even imagine what kind of attack he hasn't already gone through, and it didn't take him out last time. So he's sort of more Teflon than he ever was, and he was pretty Teflon. I mean, grab him by the you-know-what, and he still got elected. That's pretty Teflon. So he's more Teflon than ever, but if it's somebody like Bernie, Bernie has a real problem running against Trump. Bernie has a real problem. You know what Bernie's big problem is? He's not a good enough liar. <laughs> now, I believe that Bernie says some things that stretch credulity. He certainly said things that the fact-checkers checked him on and said, eh, not so much. So there are, probably there are no politicians who don't violate the fact-checking sometimes. But Bernie is kind of unique and that he's not the one to go negative as much and he's not going to lie as much. So he's the kind of person if you said hey Bernie, you know, I don't know if he's ever mentioned this, he probably has, but you know that that thing in Charlottesville, you got that wrong. It turns out turns out that that that's a misquote. The president never never said that the neo-Nazis were fine people. He was talking about the other people there that he said were not the racists. If you tell Biden that Maybe he'll still use it anyway, because it works, right? But if you tell Bernie that, and he believes, oh, oh, geez, that's not even true, and it's easy to prove it's not true, you just look at the transcript, I don't know if Bernie would use it. Maybe he would. Maybe he would. But I think Bernie is handicapped by being a little too honest, and I don't know if that would work in a general election, you know what I mean? All right. Um, there's one suggestion, uh, I just heard this from an opinion person, that one of the reasons that uh, Bernie lost some support, allegedly, this is unconfirmed, but recently with the African American population, is that Joe Rogan uh, uh, said he might vote for him. Now, does that feel right to you? Do you think that his African American support would plummet? because Joe Rogan said he might vote for Bernie Sanders? I don't think so. I don't think people are paying attention at that level, because what the heck do the black community have? What problem do they have with Joe Rogan? So it turns out you know, he's comedian and provocative, and he's been around for a long time, so you can dig through his past, and you can find something to be offended by. But I don't think most of you are aware of it, and it's not real. You know, it's just being provocative... And being offensive is a lot different from being racist, he's not racist, or even close. At least, there's certainly no evidence of it, and there's lots of evidence against it. So uh, Joe Rogan got a lot of heat from that, and he clarified his opinion, which I hadn't heard before. And it goes like this. Uh, So this is Joe Rogan clarifying his opinion about Sanders. And he said on his podcast, uh, all I said is I'm probably going to vote for him. But he added, "I like I like Tulsi Gavard. I love I love her. I love him. I love Andrew Yang. So he was making the point that he's you know it's not about one candidate. There there are several candidates that he likes. And then he goes, and this and this is why uh, Joe Rogan is a national treasure, because the next thing he says, not many people could say. I mean, he just he could go where other people can't go. And this is what Joe Rogan says. He goes, quote." Here's the really important point. I'm an effing moron, he used the real word. I'm an effing moron, Joe Rogan added, and went on to say, I don't know what's required to be president, and that maybe we're better off with Trump. Maybe we're better off with someone else. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so Rogan, of course, famously has had experiences with hallucinogenics. And you know I've always told you that that allows you to um, to see the world through different filters. Uh, if you have experience with altered consciousness, you know that you can experience a world that works perfectly. You can eat and procreate and go to work, but it all just looks different. If you've never experienced that, you think that your point of view might be magic. It's like, ah, how did I get the right point of view when there are seven billion people in the world who got it wrong? I'm magic. My brain can see things that other people can't. I'm the only one with a clear view of the world. Okay, that's kind of a low level of consciousness. The highest level of consciousness is expressed in this statement. You ready? Here's a sentence from one of the highest consciousness people, the people who can really see the field clearly. Joe Rogan, I'm an effing moron. I don't know what's required to be president and that maybe we're better off with Trump, maybe we're better off with someone else. I don't know. That statement, that he doesn't know who would be the best president or the complexity of the policies, etc., is the highest level of awareness. The, The level below that is, oh, I know, oh yeah, I know, this one's the good one, and I can tell you what the future looks like. You could be right, You could be wrong, but the higher level of awareness is we're just not that smart. We really don't know what's going to (laughs) happen. So uh, I'm happy that Joe Rogan added some context to that without changing his opinion, because he didn't say, therefore, I'm not going to vote for Bernie. He kept, he stayed with that. But then he gave us the context that uh, in his own opinion, he's an effing moron who doesn't know who would be the best president. Nobody ever said anything more honest than that. That is the most honest thing you've heard in public about politics, period. That's the most clear, highest consciousness understanding you've ever seen in public. That's it. Can't beat that. All right. Um, I, I was laughing at Pope Francis... And I don't want to get religious, and this is not an anti-Catholic thing by any means. I'm pro-religion, for those of you who don't know. I'm not a believer myself, but I think religion is mostly, you know, 90% is positive in people's lives. It helps them here on Earth, and that's great. So if it's a filter that works for you, it's a way to see the world, produces benefits, obviously it does. I'm in favor of religion, if you don't take it to the extreme. But I, I observe religion as an observer. And I can't help but wondering how these conversations went. So Pope Francis uh, uh, he's now supporting the ordination of married men as priests in the Amazon. So I guess that was a question. So there weren't enough people who wanted to be priests unless you let them also be married, which would mean that they would be having uh, relations with a woman, which is apparently not allowed if you're going to be a Catholic priest. And I wondered, like, how does that conversation go? It's like, well, you know, you get to be a a leader, a respected leader in our religion. There's just one thing. Really? Sounds great. What's the one thing? Well, there's one thing you can't do. What? You can't can't have sex. You can't have sex. All right, well, I I can put up with not having sex for a while. Well, I didn't say a while. Like forever, for the rest of your life. What? Yeah, I mean, you can be a priest, but you can't have sex for the rest of your life. And then you can imagine the person saying, ah, wow, that's tough, but, you know, at least I can, you know, if I can't have sex with another person, at least I can, you know, take care of myself, right? Well, no. So you can't do it with another person, but also you can't do it with yourself. Would you like the job? Uh, that's pretty severe. Can't do. Can't have an intimate relationship with a woman, and I can't even take care of it myself. I guess I'm going to have to do it for the money. Um, what's it pay? Uh, five, ten million a year? Well, you're also going to be Closer to poor than rich. I don't know how you sell that job, frankly. but I, So I watch it as an outsider. I'm glad that people do it, because religion is good, I think, in the world. Um, but all right. So, that's enough about that. Some get rich, somebody says. Yeah, that would be the exception, I think. I'm going to give you a suggestion that's the best suggestion you've heard. Are you ready? Here it is. During the election season, all the candidates like to take issues off the table. So if there's something that somebody's killing you with as an issue, if you can do something to remove that, that's good. One of the things that Bernie and some of the other Democrats, most of them, I think, are pushing is legalizing weed at the federal level. And um, we see Trump is completely vulnerable to that argument because he's kind of quiet on it, and he's also famously anti-drug. So he's not really the right person to take that argument to the public, even if he agrees with it. We don't know if he does, but even if he did, it would be hard for him to be the anti-drug guy. Personally in his life, it's made a big difference. He's never touched any kind of drug. So he would be the wrong person, I think, to promote legalization of any kind, because it just goes against his, his personal story too hard. But at the same time, the public wants it, and it's a big problem for the election. Here is my suggestion. Are you ready? President Trump should delegate the decision to Ben Carson. Now, I know this isn't Ben Carson's you know, job uh, in the cabinet, but Ben Carson is a famous medical professional, one of the most, well, maybe the most famous doctor in the world. Can, can you think of a medical doctor who's not like Dr. Oz, but, but somebody who's you know credible as a as an actual physician or something, I would say Ben Carson is one of the most famous medical experts in the world, and I think the president should say some version of this I'm too close to this I'm just too close to it. It's too personal. you know I lost my brother to to uh, alcohol um, i would I'm not the one who can make a decision on this, so I recuse myself. I realize it's my decision to make. But I have to recuse myself because I can't be objective on this question. So I'm going to delegate it to the most credible person I can think of, which is Ben Carson. Now it's kind of a twofer. If you haven't if you haven't figured this out on your own, uh, you may be aware that Ben Carson is black. I think most of you knew that. And you may also be aware that, especially if with the conversation about stop and frisk and uh, a lot of African-American young men being arrested for minor marijuana possession. That's part of the the whole Bloomberg story he has to explain away. Wouldn't it be the most credible thing you could do to have the recommendation, whatever it is, I don't know what Ben Carson would recommend, but wouldn't the best recommendation in terms of credibility be from a famous African-American doctor? How do you beat that? Because I think it has more impact on the African-American community, and I think everybody agrees with that. And if, if Trump isn't the one to make the decision, well, do it the way a manager would do it. You would delegate it. If, if you can't do it, delegate it. And he has the perfect person to delegate it to. Now, I again, I don't know what Ben Carson's opinions are, but that's, that's the beauty of it. Do you think Ben Carson makes decisions without looking at the science? I doubt it. Do you think Ben Carson makes decisions without you know, looking at the full field, the, you know everything from the politics to the, the science to the medical part, to the social elements? I think he sees the whole field. He'd be perfect. Now, in, in, a, in my you know, perfect world, Trump would delegate it, take himself out of the decision. Ben Carson would look into it, probably would say, let's get the federal government out of this business. Probably wouldn't say he's in favor of marijuana, I assume. I think he would just say, let's get the federal government out of this business. State's got this. um, And that would just be a win. Best idea you've ever heard, isn't it? Somebody says, it's a horrible image. Somebody's characterizing what I said as, he's black, so he knows drugs best. Did I say anything like that? <laughs> Did I just say that Ben Carson knows the most about drugs because he's black? I said nothing like that. I'll tell you what Ben Carson does know more about. He knows more about being black than somebody who isn't black. He knows more about being a doctor. He knows more about politics than people who are not involved in politics. He knows more about the Trump administration than people who are not involved with it. So, so that's that. All right, let me see if I hit all my points. Uh, I think I did. I think I did. And that's all we have for today. And let's go, go forward and have a great day. And being, <laughs> and having a, such a great simultaneous sip, it's going to be a great one. Talk to you tomorrow.